0: So, here we are, um, I'm on the phone with uh, David Abram, who accepted this invitation to speak with me on Future Primitive. So, welcome, David Abram.
1: Thank you, Joanna.
0: David Abram is a cultural ecologist, a philosopher, and performance artist. He is the founder and creative director of the Alliance for Wild Ethics. And by the way, uh, you can go to the Alliance for Wild ethi- Ethics on www.wildethics.org. He is the author of The Spell of the Sensuous Perception and Language in a more than human world, edited by Pantheon and Vintage, for which he received the International Lannan Literary Award for nonfiction, An accomplished storyteller and sleight-of-hand magician who has lived and traded magic with indigenous sorcerers in Indonesia, Nepal, and the Americas. David lectures and teaches wildly on several continents. And I could say much more, but I will stop here and ask you, David, if there is uh, anything you would like to add to this introduction.
1: Oh, well, um, just to say that I am a, a fairly normal fellow, I think. Um <laughs> Uh, if I had to really introduce myself in a nutshell and with honesty, I would just say that I am a nature bumpkin, someone who is head over heels in love with the wild, more than human world that, um, oh, that we generally refer to as, as nature, um, I call it the more-than-human world in order to say that it is a world that includes humankind and human culture, uh, but it it is much more than than justice. It includes many other cultures of different animals and organisms, plants, herbs, whole forests, mountains, rivers cloud formations, the wind, the rain, um, the whole animate Earth. Uh, This is the world that I feel in service to and that uh, motivates all of my work.
0: David, what is the place of wonder and awe in this reciprocity with all species?
1: Oh, well it does seem to me that uh, wonder is of the essence, Um, it is really at the heart of a wild ethic, a genuine ethic that would um, hold us two-legged, us humans, Mm -hmm. in uh, a sort of humility in relation to the manifold other beings that... uh, inhabit and constitute our world, um, the state of wonder is, uh, it cannot really be defined because I think that's just native to the very notion of wonder is a kind of um, um, unexpected uh, explosion of uh, any definitions or expectations when suddenly in a state of wonder falls. fall uh into uh a sudden moment of astonishment
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and pleasure is inherent in that sense of surprise um and there is an opening a sort of just uh an unexpected opening of one's expectation um and one is in the, in that sense open the otherness of what one needs whether it be the blue of the sky or uh, uh, the rocky slab of granite Mm. that suddenly confronts one as one steps out of a clutch of trees and finds oneself looking at the face of an old cliff and so wonder it seems to me is um it combines uh a sense of childlike, um, astonishment,
2: mm-hmm.
1: pleasure, with uh, a deep openness toward that which one is facing. Humility. I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Many of the terms that are most important to me, I, uh, I, I generally take care not to define too closely. Yes. Um, because the, the word can have a kind of magic that dissipates if one uh, defines it yes. too thoroughly
0: yes yes you speak about a spell as yes. in a, a magic spell and yes. spelling
1: and spelling as in S- uh, spelling as the spelling in the as alphabet yes yes putting the letters together in the right order to, to uh, spell a name or a word mm-hmm.
0: And you you say that's a a particular kind of magic
1: hmm. well yes, it does seem to me that um, that to learn to spell with the alphabet mm-hmm. was in fact uh, at first a kind of magic and was experienced as such. it really was a kind of casting a spell. Um, If you could arrange the letters in the right order
2: to
1: to name another being Mm -hmm. or another person, it almost felt as if you had a kind of power over that other. Mm. Uh, You could uh, invoke it, now not just by its spoken name, but in this visual form that would uh, provoke or call to mind uh, that being. In the awareness of anybody who looked at these letters that you had just written, it was really um, a curious kind of power or magic. But it also cast a sort of spell upon our own senses. As we entered into the regime of writing Mm -hmm. and reading, we stepped, uh, we stepped out of somewhat the more aboriginal indigenous oral relation Mm -hmm. to the animate earth around us whereas so many um, of our indigenous brothers and sisters so many of the tribal peoples of this planet are traditionally oral peoples Mm -hmm. cultures that developed and thrived for century upon century many of them for millennia Uh, without a formal system of writing. So many of the cultures, indeed most of the cultures that we ecologists tend to extol as um, living in some kind of right relation with the living land that they inhabit. Cultures that manage to, to dwell in a kind of relative reciprocity. Mm-hmm. With the living earth and mm-hmm. find ways of um, working the land that nonetheless did not hamper the ability of the earth to continually replenish itself. Such cultures, such place based cultures, almost all of them are indigenous mm-hmm. and, as we now know, oral cultures, cultures without any formalized system of writing. And so. One has to wonder why this is um, w- why this this respectful relation to the rest of nature seems to go hand in hand with an oral non writing culture. Or reversing the question, one can wonder what is it that writing did to our senses mm. and to our sensory experience of the earth around us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think. These are huge questions and very important ones that are all too rarely pondered today.
0: Could there be an an oral relationship between, say, a language that moves between a tree and a human being that couldn't be written down?
1: Well, of course. Of course. Because uh, the vehicle of... um, communication in mm-hmm. any oral culture is the air, the breath, the wind. Um, for us of the literate uh, world of modernity, uh, we speak of the media, and we mean by this the radio, mm-hmm. the television, the newspapers, all sorts of written media that we now engage, also the internet. Um, the uh the screens that capture our gaze but oral peoples traditionally oral peoples Mm
2: -hmm.
1: for them the primary medium and really still the primary primordial medium of all communication for all of us Mm
2: -hmm. is the air
1: itself it is the air that carries my words the ears of another being with whom I'm sharing the same space
2: Yes.
1: Um, of another person who is sitting next to me in my room or when we're just out walking in the hills
2: mm-hmm.
1: but that same air is carrying the sound of my words the rhythm of my speaking into the ears and senses of every other organism around certainly trees uh do hear something of our speaking if we're chanting or singing loud enough uh they feel something of the melody the rhythm i wouldn't expect they would understand the literal dictionary meanings of our words but there is a deeper kind of meaning that's always carried when we speak in the rhythm and shape of our speaking in the texture and tonality of our um, of our tongues discourse and trees as well seem to speak anyway whenever the wind is blowing through their branches rattling the leaves of an aspen or whooshing and whirring through the needles of the ponderosa pines Mm -hmm. that grow above my home
2: Mm -hmm. here
1: Um, so I would say that two an oral or indigenous uh, mindset Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, one finds that everything speaks Mm -hmm. every sound can be a voice even the wind in the willows Mm -hmm. is a kind of voice because it carries all sorts of self meanings to our bodies and we are affected by um, these sounds or voices Uh, and so of course one can have a uh uh, an oral uh relationship with the tree one can speak to a tree and one can certainly feel the tree speaking to oneself as long as one doesn't restrict language to being a verbal thing because trees like other animals and uh like the wind itself does not speak in words Mm -hmm. it only speaks in words when we inhale some of this invisible substance we call the air, Mm -hmm. and then breathe it out, and as we breathe out, we shape that breath with our tongue and our teeth and our palate, Mm. let it vibrate a couple of chords in our throat, and and send it out into the world Mm. as a word
2: Mm. or
1: a song. Mm -hmm. But still, it's just the wind blowing through us, not that different from... The breeze as it pours through the branches of a cottonwood tree.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's it's the wind that speaks in us and through us. That anyway is is the way many tribal indigenous people would speak of language. Mm-hmm. Um, they see our words as being shaped breath, mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so the breath or the air, yes. this invisible mystery in which we're bodily immersed,
2: mm-hmm. is
1: the implicit intermediary in all communication. And and hence one finds, as one wanders uh, the world, if one has the luck to spend time with different indigenous communities, um, whether the different native communities here in North America, the Lakota people of the plains, or the, the Hopi people of the Southwest Desert near here where I live, Mm-hmm. Um, or the Ogoni people in Nigeria or the Sami people of northern Scandinavia or the Pintupi and jara of Australia. One finds among all these very different cultures, mm-hmm. so weirdly uh, distinct from one another, certain commonalities, and one of them is a sense that the wind, the invisible air itself is the uh, is mystery of mysteries. Mm. Um, it's a very holy very sacred presence Um, for the Navajo people near here they speak of it as Uh which means the holy wind and the holy wind is is what gives all things life and breath and awareness Uh and um, so it's not just humans that are aware but every being that partakes of nilchi, the holy wind. Mm. Every animal that breathes, every plant that uh, metabolizes the carbon dioxide from the air, as we would say, Mm. is is thus also awake and aware, though in a very different shape and hence has a very different experience of awareness than we do. But the mountains too participate Mm. in the swirling atmosphere, the clouds as well. Every being partakes of awareness by virtue of being immersed and embedded uh, with their whole body within the breathing earth mm. mm-hmm.
0: and do air fire and water have a language I don't know <laughs> I
1: don't know uh, it would be hard to believe that that they do not yes but i'm speaking here um, as an almost as an animistic uh indigenous person myself which is um, not entirely the case uh i do think we all have our oral animistic um, ground uh, mm-hmm. that our bodies is sort of spontaneously um, animistic by its very nature that um to feel the world in this very simple oral uh, way as something that is alive through and through. I think it is our birthright as human beings, Um, but overlaid on our animistic oral body is today uh, a literate or literalized Mm -hmm. mind um, and a technologized intellect. Yes. Um, But nonetheless, I don't think we can ever put out of play, uh, as long as we're alive, we can't really completely pave over the indigenous soul uh, and the indigenous uh, animistic leanings or proclivities of our animal body. It seems to me, Joanna, that our senses, for instance, and... uh, our sensing organism is inherently animistic that the human senses left to their own devices in the absence of any intervening technologies like the printed page or the digital screen Mm -hmm. our senses spontaneously experience the sensuous terrain around them as something that is alive through and through Mm -hmm. when we look out at the world and listen to the world with our animal ears, Um, Well, we even say that uh, a particular stone caught my gaze, a particular tree uh, captured my attention. We speak in this way of things that grab our focus as though we're um, describing an active engagement
2: Mm -hmm. of
1: our sensing body by the things of the world, even if it's just a stone, we feel that it engages us, and my focus is caught by this stone or leaf Mm
2: -hmm. lying
1: on the dirt road, Mm -hmm. and I turn my attention toward it, Mm. and in reply this this leaf shows something more of itself. I perhaps begin to notice the texture of its surface or some of the small... um, holes or cracks that have opened in this leaf since it fell down in the autumn Um, and these aspects of its surface its color its texture pose another question back to me which i reply to perhaps by leaning forward and picking up that leaf Mm -hmm. and turning it in my fingers which enables the leaf to reveal again something further of itself to me and so gradually i enter into a silent conversation with this other being, with a leaf or a stone or a tree or a mountain I'm gazing Mm -hmm. that seems to be gazing back at me. Mm -hmm. So I would say that um, our human senses spontaneously experience the world as something that is active and that can actively engage us and draw us into relation mm-hmm. and we know this is the case because virtually every indigenous oral culture we know of from every continent on the planet as as weirdly different from one another as these cultures are mm-hmm. they all speak of the world as something that is alive through and through none of the deeply oral indigenous cultures of this planet uh, are willing to make a clear distinction between that which is animate and that which is inanimate Mm. rather for them everything is animate Mm. everything moves Mm -hmm. it's just that some things move much slower than other things like like the ground underfoot Mm -hmm. or the walls of one's house or or the slope of a mountain and yet the assumption for every aboriginal culture is that the mountain nonetheless has its own kind of motion has its own style of life and agency Mm. that anything we can sense is a sentient sensing being in its own right um, able to feel and respond to the things around it and to affect them Mm -hmm. that a mountain has a, a, a powerful ability to affect the space around it
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, is obvious from anybody who watches the air and the clouds. Mm-hmm. So mountains, though we may think of them as inanimate, in fact they are active, mm-hmm. animate agencies are powerfully engaging the space that surrounds them and powerfully engaging us if even we just turn our attention toward them we feel moved uh sometimes stunned into silence by a mountain and if one lives on the slopes of a mountain as i do um, i can't help but feel that uh, that it's affecting many of the thoughts that come to me uh, as i sit here within my home yes. or as i write or at night as i sleep and dream i'm in a kind of felt uh, very corporeal dialogue with larger body outside Mm -hmm. the window Mm -hmm.
0: i also live on a mountain here in spain Mm. uh, that looks down onto the mediterranean and the atlantic and embraced by two other mountains which i see as wings embracing the body of this mountain
1: oh how beautiful
0: it is it's it's very beautiful Mm. I'd like to ask you if you wish to speak uh, about your work as a shaman and uh, as a magician if those two things go together for you.
1: Mm. Well, I, I don't suppose I, um, I use the word shaman very yes. much and certainly um, don't call myself a shaman. Yes. Um, perhaps just because the word um, doesn't have a lot of meaning to me uh, uh-huh. today, it seems to be a word that um, has been so popularized and almost really sold down the river by a kind of commercialism. Yes. Um, I I'm very aware of and have spent time with. Um, uh, a good number of traditional magic practitioners, mm-hmm. uh, uh, medicine people mm-hmm. in different cultures mm-hmm. uh, around this vast world. Mm-hmm. Only a few, I must admit, uh, of such cultures mm-hmm. compared to the amazing diversity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. one finds among indigenous, traditional people. But of course, the word shamang... Um, Comes from a very particular form of practice endemic to uh, some of the Siberian peoples. Uh, it has great similarities to other circumpolar uh, tribes of the far north mm-hmm. and several um, in in the east in Mongolia as well. Um, I'm I. I uh, while I'm speaking of this, I should mention that I'm, I'm especially dismayed by the term shamanism. Yes. Uh, that has become c- such a catchword today. Um, but I really wouldn't know what, uh, this word means. I don't know what it means except the mm-hmm. kind of, um, uh, contemporary commercialized galop where, where a form of practice a style of magic that is so particular to each indigenous tradition given the closeness that these traditions have to the living land that Mm -hmm. holds them and given the diversity, the differences between uh, northern Siberia and the Amazon rainforest or the deserts of the American Southwest Mm -hmm. here where I live or the northwest coast of North America every indigenous oral people is in a very direct reciprocal rapport with the living landscape that it inhabits and these landscapes are so different from one another and hence the forms of magic and the particular medicines that are um, available to a culture and that arise between that people and the local earth Mm -hmm. are unique to each culture and i'm astonished at the way in which we've assumed that um that this particular magic of the shaman is one thing that is found in the same way in every tribal culture i don't believe it is and i believe it's It does a tremendous disservice to just speak of shamanism Mm -hmm. as if it is uh, a single body of practice that can be decontextualized from the particular uh, cultures where uh, these people of unique uh, medicine practice their craft. Um, So I would say this, that, um, that while the term shamanism makes little sense to me also because it seems to suggest that the shaman is at the center of the tribal community mm-hmm. shamanism suggests that this there's a whole um, a almost religious uh, body of belief a mm-hmm. religion that almost worships the shaman mm-hmm. that, that places its focus upon the shaman hence we'd call it shamanism mm-hmm. but anyone who has spent a long time among different indigenous peoples mm-hmm. has discovered that the shamans or medicine people or magicians are only very rarely um, at the center of their communities they don't even dwell usually within the the human hubbub um, of the community they're usually living out at the very edge of the community or even beyond the boundary of the village out among a cluster of wild boulders or 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 out among uh, some wild uh, swamps where the village people wouldn't even venture at night because the magician's uh, intelligence his or her unique form of sentient is not encompassed by the the style of intelligence that's common to the human village. It's it's it, it can never be entirely um, held or circumscribed within the human um, styles of thought common to that culture because the magician's place really is at the edge of the community mediating between the human goings-on and the other than human, the wider than human community Mm. of beings within which the human community is embedded. But the shaman or the magician's Mm. uh, particular gift, um, which is also a kind of curse, Is to not be um, entirely human, or at least to to have one's allegiance not so much to one's human colleagues, but to the whole more than human community of beings—the community that includes us two-leggeds, but includes all also all the other walking and crawling beings that inhabit the land and, and the other flapping and flying screeching folks who swoop by overhead mm-hmm. and the finned peoples who live mm-hmm. within the rivers and streams and the oceans and um, but also the rooted peoples, the plants and the herbs and the forests and the mountains as well mm-hmm. and the, the rivers. These two are members of one's community if one is practicing as a magician or medicine person. Uh, the storm clouds are, are key active, um, persons, one could say, or beings who are also part of your constituency,
2: mm-hmm. as
1: are the stones and the dry creek beds. Everything to such a mindset everything is alive and the magicians or the shamans Mm -hmm. if one wishes to call them that are those persons who are most susceptible to these other than human shapes of intelligence Um, they are those folks among us who are a little more sensitive um, than many of us Um, they're more porous, one could say. Mm-hmm. They pick up uh, the felt uh, sensations uh, given off by a tree or another animal uh, a bit more easily than those of us who um, who are more at ease in the middle of the community. So medicine people um, tend not to be uh, really at home in the human hubbub they're not they don't make good mayors or even
2: chiefs
1: (laughs) of the tribe they um because they're so sensitive um their skin one could say is so porous
2: Mm.
1: that they have this this uncanny kind of somatic empathy that feels uh something of what other bodies feel and when they're among just other human beings
2: mm-hmm.
1: whose bodies are so much like their own mm-hmm. because they have the same shape,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you pick up too easily what other people are feeling because you're so porous. Um, you know, people like this, uh, in our culture, you can recognize them because they tend to take on the accent of whoever they're talking to. <laughs> um, uh you know if you're talking to uh <laughs> someone on the phone everybody in the room where you're sitting will know the the nationality of the person you're talking to because you're speaking with a french accent uh, if you're talking to a frenchman a russian accent if you're talking to someone from russia uh, you're very uh porous, porous. people percolate through you and um, a lot of people are like this of course mm. it's uh, it's it's not a tiny uh minority it, could be as much as 20% of the human population is such that um, that you're just a little too sensitive to hang out strictly with others of your own species mm-hmm. because it blows out your circuits you mm-hmm. just feel what they feel all the time and you can be sitting in a room talking to someone and in a big party, even, and someone comes in who's all bummed out because they've been fired from their job, and <laughs> and you start feeling kind of glum and dejected without even knowing why, um, or somebody enters behind you who is terribly el- elated because something wonderful just happened in their life, and you start feeling rather good and mm-hmm. um, and kind of giddy, without even seeing that person your body picks it up from his body or from her body because you have this kind of uh, uncanny somatic empathy well this is the style of nervous system that is common to uh, the magicians or the medicine people or the shamans of any uh, place-based culture and such folks attend quite naturally to gravitate toward the edge of the human community so they're not surrounded by other 2 leggeds all the time
2: mm-hmm. but
1: with one hand they can be in relation to the human goings on but with the other hand they're in relation to the forest mm-hmm. and to all the other shapes of sensitivity and sentience that comprise the forest and that becomes their charge Within the community, their responsibility
2: mm-hmm. is
1: to tend the boundary between the human world and the more-than-human world, and to make sure that that boundary itself stays porous. Mm-hmm. That it that it stays a membrane.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That it never hardens into a barrier shutting out the more-than-human world, but it, but that it stays a porous membrane across which there is a two-way flow in both directions, that the human community never takes more from the land than it returns to the living land, whether with prayers or propitiations Mm -hmm. um, or simply praises. um, And many uh, great magicians or medicine people are um, masters of eloquence in order to be able to offer praise Mm -hmm. regularly. Mm -hmm to the other than human uh, shapes of life that that surround us to honor these beings with our own oral eloquence of course in the modern world today
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, at least in the alphabetized world of the west um, we don't think of these other uh, living forms not even The other animals, much less the plants, Mm -hmm. much less the mountains and the rivers and, uh, the winds as being alive, as being the kinds of things that, uh, could draw you into any kind of relationship. They're just objects, complex, sometimes, Mm objects, but, um, objects nonetheless, basically passive, uh, entities automatically or mechanically, uh, doing their thing in the world and so uh in the modern world people who have that very kind of sensitivity and porousness tend not to know what to do with themselves um and they start getting in a lot of trouble um by the time they're in their mid teenage years Mm -hmm. often uh such sensitives um, because they're not recognized within the culture, and because they have no place, really, mm-hmm. in a culture that defines everything that's not human as basically inert or inanimate, um, this kind of sensitivity is not good for anything, and um, and so you can get locked up fairly quickly, whether in uh, in prison or in a psychiatric hospital, yeah. um, or you lock yourself up inside yourself, yes. uh, and. And then you wake up when you're 40 or 50 years old, wondering, "Good heavens, where what have I happened? been all my life?" Yeah. yeah.
0: So, David Abram, I um, I, s- I know that you have, and I look at this uh, w- new website.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, www.wildethics.org, and uh, I want to ask you to talk to us about your website.
1: Well, the website is really just a window onto uh, our organization which is called the Alliance for Wild Ethics, mm-hmm. or A-W-E, which spells awe, a word that uh, we feel a great affinity with. The Alliance for Wild Ethics, well, um, let me first say a word about wild. Um, we are in service to wildness. Um, and what we mean by wild is that which is, which is, it's not out of control, but it's out of our control, that which follows its own will, hmm. its own way in the world. A wild land is land, is land that follows its own Tao, um, its own spontaneous, uh, order and way of dancing mm-hmm. uh, in the midst of, of the wider world um, at the very moment historically when wilderness in uh, the pristine sense that very notion of wilderness as as land that is untouched or untainted by humankind, or even simply land that is untouched by human civilization and mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know that wilderness, in that traditional sense, is vanishing from the world at this very moment. In fact, it's really, um, it's really gone. Uh, we know that global climate change is by now affecting the atmosphere every part of the sphere and of course that the air the atmosphere uh works its way into every nook and cranny of um, the terrestrial surface so they're really uh they, given the fact that climate change is caused at least uh, partially by human industry mm-hmm. and technology that profligate Burning of fossil fuels uh, for purely human benefit, we can see that um, there is no part of the world that is now unaffected by civilization, and so wilderness in that pristine sense is really uh, dissolving out of existence. But at that very historical moment when when wilderness is vanishing, we humans, I think, are beginning to wake up to the fact that there is no place that is not wild. Yes. That there is no place that falls completely under uh, human control, mm-hmm. under an exclusively human uh, uh, sort of mastery and control, not even the realm of our own private thoughts we now know that these two are deeply influenced uh, by the unconscious dynamics unfolding in one's animal body and one's body's relations with the larger flesh of the earth itself. So wildness, in this sense, um, is perhaps the better word for naming what many of our brothers and sisters in the sciences have been calling chaos. Or um, chaotic behavior. Mm-hmm. When they examine um, and try to to mathematically model the air currents in a room mm-hmm. with all of its many vortices, they now say that well, those air currents are chaotic. That is to say, they follow a kind of nonlinear behavior that cannot be predicted. Even if we know every knowable parameter of how the air in the room is structured at the present moment, I still can't know just how it will uh, arrange itself in the next moment. Even uh, the pattern of waves as they break on the beach, this too is described as chaotic. Um, even the heart beating in one's chest, we're now told that you can't ever precisely predict the exact microsecond of the next heartbeat because Mm -hmm. it's always just a bit out of phase it follows again this kind of non-linear uh non-predictable um chaotic behavior well they've been calling it chaotic but of course that's a very awkward word to use the word chaos in conventional usage has always meant no order whatsoever Mm -hmm. uh uh something that's chaotic is completely disordered anarchic but surely our scientific brothers and sisters don't mean to be saying that the heart beating in our chest is uh without any order to it whatsoever or that the waves breaking on the beach have no order they don't mean to say that they're completely out of out of any pattern but simply that that pattern can't be uh mastered or fully fathomed by the human intellect they don't mean to say that the heart is out of control but that it's out of our control in short they mean to say that it's wild mm. that everywhere we turn we find wild patterning patterning that we cannot master that we cannot uh, figure out ever in its entirety we can't c- come up with a blueprint of even the air currents in a small room where one sits so wildness in this sense um, a wild is a much better word than chaos
2: mm-hmm. and
1: wildness is what we are made of um, it's w- what constitutes the human animal and every other presence uh, in this elemental earth. We're made of wildness. And even the city, um, it's just a relatively domesticated zone of wildness, right. but it's still wild.
2: Mm.
1: Um, so one can't really step out of the wild. What one can do is deny it and pretend that one has mastery over a certain uh, subset of mm wild phenomena but when we deny that it's really wild or we pretend that we really do have that kind of mastery and control then we take ourselves out of relation Mm -hmm. with the larger more than human patternings the, 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 the the wilder field of spontaneity that is this um outrageous biosphere this planet that we inhabit and so the Alliance for Wild Ethics has as its intent um, the dissemination of various practices insights Mm -hmm. um, and um, knowledges for bringing human communities back into right relation with the living landscapes that they inhabit and a central um, strategy of ours is the rejuvenation of oral culture as an ecological imperative. Because uh, our sense is that um, literate culture, and we, we are all um, readers and we love to write. I'm a writer uh, mm-hmm. finishing uh, uh, another book just right now, in fact, and I love to read. I'm not getting down on the written word, yeah. I just want to say that it is not everything. Mm-hmm. That the culture of the book of, uh, and of newspapers and magazines, the literate culture, is inherently, I would say, cosmopolitan. It makes possible the mixing of stories from many different places and cultures and different eras and epochs. Um, and it brings this rich cosmopolitan buzz that comes from that mixing of different stories um, the excitement of the, the, the cosmopolitan city center is something i love mm.
2: um,
1: but if the culture of the book is inherently cosmopolitan and hence uh, a, a little bit abstracted from a full-on uh, intimacy with plates because you're, you're, you're engaged in tales and insights from other places. Well, I would say the culture of the computer and computer literacy and the Internet, the culture of
2: mm-hmm.
1: blogs and emails and web pages like yours yes. uh, and mine, is even more abstract in a way. It's, um, I would say, somewhat global and globalizing and when I sit down to uh, work on the Internet and correspond with friends, I'm almost uh, leaving my body immobilized in the chair as I uh, dialogue with people who have logged on in other places around the sphere. The Internet is, I would say, inherently globalizing, and it's making possible the rapid globalization of the economy and many other things. Um, In contrast to both of these, the culture of oral culture, the culture of stories and face-to-face storytelling is inherently local. It is the telling of tales that are not written down anywhere but that live in the local landscape. story of how the river feels when the salmon return to its waters
2: Mm -hmm. and this
1: is a story that we tell when uh the salmon begin coming up the river into the smaller streams again different uh communities that live in those headwaters begin to gather out on the banks of those streams and to tell some of the stories that uh are about this marvelous cyclical event. And I've been present at, at several such tellings that are being rejuvenated now, not just by Native peoples, but rejuvenated by the gringos and the white people and the Hispanic people, all the people who live in these communities that know they need to honor the land in order to bring their senses back into deep connection with the sensuous earth and so these are festivals of honoring the salmon and people have composed not just songs but dances salmon dances that they do wearing masks uh... to honor the salmon as they're returning it's just one example of yeah. a kind of oral culture that can begin to percolate when we reserve some space in our days not just uh, for that kind of languaging we practice over the computer and the other kind of languaging we engage in when we're reading and writing books or newspapers, but a practice of interchange and communication that is not written down, neither on the page nor the screen, but a kind of thing that we do when we tug our kids out of doors and point up to the starry sky and improvise a story about how those stars came to be there or just what goes on inside that forest edge every full moon or if we live in the middle of the city what are the stories there that live on those streets and between those uh, steel and glass walls um, at the street corners um, where those traffic lights uh reside that turn red just as you pull up to them with your automobile it's as if the spirits still live at the crossroads as they used to in all the old stories the spirits linger and hang out at the crossroads well in the middle of the city they do the same thing attracted by the electric buzz of our traffic lights Mm
2: -hmm. and they're
1: the ones perhaps who turn those lights from green to red just as you're driving up to them all the time and then they feast on the frustration of the drivers steaming in the cabin of the car well beginning to tell stories again is to begin to wake up our indigenous soul to wake up the animistic sensibility that is our birthright as human beings and so the Alliance for Wild Ethics is about rejuvenating oral culture, um, as an ecological imperative, as a way to replenish the spontaneous kinship between the human animal and the animate earth, and um, and so to bring ourselves back into right relation with the land.
0: Well, I've shared with you that, that your work and conversation with you uh, has been an inspiration for... Uh, my creatingfutureprimitive dot org. You're speaking oh. about oral tradition because I just have this strong feeling that as long as the internet is is working, uh, at least we can feel each other's voices. Yes, and it may not be like looking each, into each other's faces, but. There is something about hearing each other, so oh, yeah,
1: certainly, certainly. So I, I think I would say, you know, when I speak of rejuvenating oral culture, I certainly don't mean to the exclusion of writing or the internet. But my hunch is just that this wonderful new globalizing culture of the internet and the World Wide Web, um, and the cosmopolitan culture of books, that these layers of the human society will only really begin to make sense again and not be destructive of ourselves and of our communities mm-hmm. and of the earth when they're both rooted once again in a thriving oral community oral culture, which would necessarily be oral cultures because every valley, every watershed
0: of this planet will
1: have its own rhythms, its own stories that circulate within that valley that the people tell there and that they don't write down or record and so they live there out on the land and people gather out on the land in the appropriate season to tell those stories to one another and the land tells those stories through them when they honor it rightly and so the land begins to speak once again to us two-legged so it really is at this very moment of globalization uh, a tremendous opportunity for, uh, for a re-diversification of culture and a localizing of uh of community that that is almost um, it's almost allowed by um, and made possible by the global interconnectedness that the computer is uh is fostering mm-hmm. right now it frees us
2: mm-hmm.
1: to also drop back into the intimacy of the particular places we inhabit and to cultivate a culture appropriate to that valley, to the particular place where you live, to that wetland, to that coastal Mm -hmm. estuary, uh, to that city or town. Um, A a kind of culture with its stories and songs and rhythms that will be different even from the way they speak on the other side of of the nearby hills. And that is what the Earth, I think, is asking from us now. She cannot withstand uh, 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 the total homogenization of human civilization trying to uh, treat the earth as though it was just one amorphous, homogenous thing. Like any organic being, this biosphere is a vast spherical metabolism that has different organs and tissues within itself and just like my body would fall apart if the cells within my heart were trying to do the same thing as those within my kneecap Mm -hmm. or the cells within my liver. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So we tremendously harm the earth when we all begin to act um, and carry on our civilized practices. Uh, as though what's happening here in the United States uh, should be no different from the kinds of community and society that are happening in Spain or Scandinavia or in Africa. Um, diversity is what we're made of, and it's what this earth needs in order to survive and to flourish and for us to flourish within it
0: it's like uh, we have the European community, and yet there are thousands and thousands of cheeses
2: mm.
0: with different flavors all around <laughs> France Spain.
1: Yeah. It, it's fantastic. You can the uh, the movement, the slow food movement, I'm sure you're aware of, yes. is, um, is something that uh, we in the Alliance for Wild Ethics are... Uh, feel tremendous solidarity with. We believe in slow food, not fast food, but also slow money, not tremendous injections of huge uh, monies into cultures that lived in such a vernacular and convivial way uh, without a lot of money before. Bring in the energy slowly, bring in the money slowly so that um, so that culture can continue to complexify and not be bowled over. Um, slow schooling, slow education, yes. slow life,
0: slow um, love making,
1: and S- slow love making. Yes,
0: above <laughs> all, indeed,
1: with one another and with the earth itself. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, I think this is a good place to. To spiral to a stop at yeah. this time. So I want to thank you with all my heart for your generosity of, uh, of word and feeling.
1: Oh, thank you for, uh, for inviting me to, to talk with you. It's a delight.
0: So here we are. Um, I'm on the phone with uh, David Abram,